I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 14th, 2011. I, I, this entire program, I feel like I'm distracted. I've, I've got two web pages open. One for news on the Crystal Cathedral, whether or not the Archdiocese uh, of uh, Orange County is going to get the uh, Crystal Cathedral. The other is watching the Tornado Watch here in Indianapolis. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you, well, uh, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, yeah, there's a postmodern notion out there that you, you, you need to check to see if it's uh, running under the hood in your brain. And if it is, you need to get it removed. It's like, you know, when you take your, your car in to get it lube and oiled and in they'll in say, yeah, we're going to need to drain out the old oil and or maybe put some kind of a thing into your engine to remove the engine sludge so that your, your engine doesn't freeze up. It's the same thing going on here. So uh, just do a self-diagnostic here. And uh, if you test positive for this, it's just real simple. Just reverse, uh, reverse it. And here's what I mean. Okay, postmodernity has this notion that somehow it is the interpreter that decides what the meaning of a text is. It's the interpreter who decides. And uh, if you, uh, in fact, I've got this book, um, <clears throat> hilarious book by Frederick Cruz entitled "The Pooh Perplex." The Pooh Perplex. And what happens? It's 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 a real whimsical, uh, satirical stab at postmodernity, and so it takes this uh, idea. You take the story of Winnie the Pooh, and then you uh, and then what happens is is that you uh, have all these different interpreters interpret it through their interpretive lenses. You've got the. Um, the, the I'll give you some examples. Um, 
you've got uh, different chapters with different literary uh, critic uh, critics just applying all kinds of weird literary critic uh, critical methods to it but you got the paradoxical persona the hierarchy of heroism in winnie the pooh the bourgeois writer's uh, proletarian fables you, know, you got uh, a, a marxist theorist here the theory and practice of bardic verse notations on the hums of pooh uh, poisoned paradise, the underside of poo. Yes, yeah, so what happens is is that you know this postmodernity basically teaches that uh, when you you've got a text, it's the interpreter, the it's the receiver who decides the meaning of the text, and so they run it through all these different interpretive lenses to come up with all these bizarre concepts. Yeah, that's not what happens, um, especially when it comes to scripture. Uh, he, here's the deal: it's the author, not the recipient, who decides. Uh, the meaning of a particular text. It's the author, not the interpreter. The job of the reader is to is to figure out what the author intended to say. And so you don't you don't you know, it, when you receive a text, it's not Plato in your hand where you sit there and go, "Oh, this text means to me." You know, and see that that's one hundred and eighty degrees backwards. So the question is. What did the Holy Spirit intend for this passage to teach? What was it that the Holy Spirit was conveying by having the biblical authors write down this passage? See, that's the idea. So the intended meaning of the author is what governs, not the interpretation of the receiver, as if somehow you can just take any given text and twist it into any old pretzel that you want it to, in order to mean whatever it is that you want it to mean. That's not how language works, and um, you and I know this. Um, you know, For instance, okay, uh, those of you who uh, work in corporate America and listen to Fighting for the Faith, you may be, in fact, you may be listening right now while on your morning commute. And if you're on your morning commute, uh, then, then, you know, you're on your way into the labyrinth uh, the maze of cubicles that uh, that you dwell in and work in on a day to day basis as you serve your neighbor there in your vocation, you know, doing whatever it is that you do inside of your cubicle. Uh, but do you know that uh, from time to time, uh, either the 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 big boss of the corporate office where you're working at, or even more importantly, headquarters itself, sometimes sends out a memo. And when you receive the memo, you are required to sign your initials on some kind of a sheet of paper or at the bottom of the memo saying that you have read and understand the memo. Now, it could be about anything. I mean, it could, you know, the memo could have to do with, you know, uh, Friday attire, whether or not you, Friday is casual day in your office or whether or not there will be bagels, donuts and cream cheese uh, served, uh, you know, at uh, at breakfast on Saturday mornings for those of you who are required to, uh, you know, to uh, work on Saturdays. You get what I'm saying. So the thing is, is, though, that when the memo is sent out, it is understood that Whoever wrote the memo, whether it be the district manager of that particular corporate office or if it's the senior vice president of sales and marketing or the CEO himself, whoever it is that wrote the memo wrote down things. He, well, basically, he's the author of the memo. He's the author of the policies or he's conveying the policies. And it is your job to understand 
what it is they're communicating and for it to impact you in your behavior, uh, in your performance, however, whatever the memo deal. But see, here's the idea is we all understand it's the person who wrote the memo who's the one who gets to decide what the memo means, not you. Okay, now, from time to time, you get a very poorly written memo. It, it just happens. Um, and as a result of it, there's questions. And when the questions arise, you don't ever feel that when these questions arrive, when you receive the memo, let, you'll say you got a, a poorly written memo, maybe the grammar's off, maybe there's a dangling participle. Um, it, it does, how, it may, maybe it's grammatically obtuse, or worse, there was some kind of a, of a spelling error, okay? And so as a result of it, the meaning of the memo isn't exactly clear, and it could be interpreted a number of different ways. Well, what happens when that happens? Do you just sit there and go, well, there's multiple different ways to interpret the memo, so we're just going to pretend the memo doesn't exist. No. If, when that happens, you know, you're on the phone with your boss going, okay, I got the memo, and I don't understand it. And you, and you convey your, your confusion to your boss. And your boss, If your boss agrees with you, oh, my goodness, this I don't understand this either. Then your boss calls his or her boss. And it, it, and things there's there's phone conversations that occur all the way up the chain to the person who wrote the memo, and then there's communication that comes back down for clarification regarding what was in the memo. Right, right. Any of you who've spent time in the corporate world know that. And so the idea is this: it's the author, not the reader, who decides what is being conveyed. What is being what is meant to be understood. And in today's postmodern world, uh, we've got it 180 degrees backwards. There's a whole slew of people out there who basically say, well, it could be interpreted this way, it could be interpreted that way, and, well, just interpret it any old way you feel like you could interpret it. That's not what we're supposed to do. Since we're dealing with God's revealed word, with how he's revealed himself, um, it behooves us to get at and understand what it is that God the Holy Spirit intended to convey. And here's, now, <clears throat> here's a simple theological phrase for you to keep in mind. The phrase is called the perspicuity of Scripture. The, the, the idea is this, is that, um, God's word, uh, it, it's actually not difficult to understand. In fact, uh, hang on a second here. I got to pull this up on my computer. Yeah, the perspicuity of scripture. Yeah, sorry. I, there's some, uh, something I sent out a link to earlier today on this uh, from the monergism.com website. Uh, Kevin J. Van Hooser uh, wrote this. And here's what he says. Uh, to begin with, it's important to note that what the clarity of Scripture does not mean. This is the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. It does not mean, first of all, that interpretation is unnecessary. The biblical meaning will be delivered up by some mystical process of hermeneutical osmosis. Nor does it mean that an autonomous individual can, by employing critical techniques alone, wrest the meaning from the text. Rather, clarity means that the Bible is sufficiently unambiguous in the main 
for any well-intentioned person with Christian faith to interpret each part with relative adequacy. In the context of the Reformation, the perspicuity of Scripture was the chief weapon for combating the authority of the dominant interpretive community, otherwise known as Rome. The idea that the Bible is clear does not obviate the need for interpretation, but, on the contrary, makes the work of interpretation even more important. The clarity of Scripture means that understanding is actually possible. Not that it's easy. Redeeming the text does not mean uh, uh, reconciling all interpretive conflicts. The clarity of Scripture is neither an absolute value nor an abstract property, but a specific function relative to its particular aim to witness to Christ. The clarity of Scripture, in other words, does not mean that we will know everything there is to know about the text, but that we will know enough to be able and and, uh, and responsible to respond to the subject matter. The clarity of Scripture is not a matter of obviousness as much as its efficacy. The Bible is clear enough to render its communicative action effectively. That's one way of putting it. Or the Westminster Confession of Faith says this in uh, section 1, uh, part 7, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Or, as Martin Luther says in The Bondage of the Will, but if many things still remain abstruse to many, this does not arise from obscurity in the scriptures, but from our own blindness or want or lack of understanding, who do not go the way to see all the all the perfect clearness of the truth. Let, therefore, wretched men cease to impute with blasphemous perverseness the darkness and obscurity of their own heart to all the clear scriptures of God. If you speak of the internal clearness, no man sees one iota in the scripture, but he that hath the Spirit of God. If you speak of the external clearness, nothing whatever is left obscure or or unambiguous, but all things that are in the scriptures are by the word of God brought forth into the clearest light and proclaimed to the whole world. So the idea is this, is that uh, God's word is understandable. It's clear enough that you can actually get it. And uh, it's, you know, just because it's the word of God doesn't mean that you have to put on some kind of weird cosmic peepers in order to see the translucent spiritual green text between the text in order to understand it. Not at all. In fact, God, the Holy Spirit, used simple nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, direct objects, indirect objects, possessive genitives, and things of that nature in order to communicate and reveal that which was necessary and sufficient for salvation. And actually, we can get it. We can understand it. And the goal in your then your biblical studies is to learn how to understand what it is that the author, the ultimate author being God, the Holy Spirit, intended to convey in each of the passages. So I just want to keep that in mind. So if you test positive for the postmodern way of thinking that flips everything on its head, that basically says it's the interpreter who decides the meaning, you just real simple, just reverse it. Just you know, say, oh, yeah, I, I may be guilty of that. No problem. 
just reverse the process. The author decides the meaning. It's the job of the reader to figure out what the author is conveying. That's plain and simple. So just a simple, real simple uh, clear up uh, there regarding uh, one of the major problems of postmodernity. And you may here's the deal. You, you may have just been exposed to postmodernity casually. Postmodernity has been known to spread via casual contact. And so, you know, if you've just tested positive for that, just real simple, just reverse it. The author, not the reader. The author, not the reader, is the one who decides the meaning of the text. And God's word is clear enough that you can actually understand it. So, all right. Okay. So, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, by the way, I don't know if you all know this, but I do record fighting for the faith a little bit ahead of time as to when it uh, broadcasts. That way, I can spend the evenings with my family. But as 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 of this moment as i'm watching the news i've i've got to i've got a google uh, alert thing set up on my uh, web browser here i'm i'm looking for news on the um, uh, on the uh, crystal cathedral sale because t- apparently today a, a judge is going to make the decision as to who is going to be able to purchase the the crystal cathedral um and uh, and and uh, the uh, the roman catholic church the roman catholic diocese in orange county has uh, you know they're you know they're basically trying to make the claim that that they need to be the ones to purchase it and that the Crystal Cathedral will not truly be out of uh, the financial woods unless of course they're the ones who purchase the Crystal Cathedral. So yeah, you know, keep keeping an eye out on that story. So all right, let's uh, man, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Okay, I've got a well, I've got a video, uh, a new Museum of Idolatry um, uh, exhibit that I'm going to be playing. Uh, some folks uh, recently inspired by Ed Young's, um, oh man, uh, by Ed Young's recently concluded sermon series um, on on being in the blessing zone. I've put together some kind of a relevant rap recap of uh, what um, what Ed Young taught there. So we're going to be playing that today. I've got a video from uh, my old boss, uh, Dr. James Dobson. Now, years ago when I was skinny, young, and all that kind of stuff, um, I, I uh, worked at uh, Focus on the Family back in the days when they were in Pomona, California, and I, I was uh, part of the team that helped close down the Pomona office when they made the move to Colorado Springs, Colorado. And, um, and, you know, if, if you've heard my story, you know, that time in, in American evangelicalism was particularly, well, frustrating for me. And, uh, and so, you know, I went to, uh, Marinette, the high school, went to high school with, uh, James, Do- uh, James Dobson's son. Um, and, and, you know, in fact, I, you, I, I, I've known the Dobsons, uh, you know, since I was a kid. Anyway, so uh, there's a recent uh, video that uh, you know a, a piece of it that has uh, been put on YouTube, and uh, and I'm gonna play it. Um, and part of me is sad because in in looking at the video, Dr. Dobson is looking old. He's looking very elderly, very frail. Um, very sad to see that. Um, but his theology here is um, well, it's 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 kind of 180 degrees backwards from what we Christians really need to be focusing on. So um, the name of the video is God Will Stop Blessing America If We Don't Vote Right, and, uh, and Dr. James Dobson is featured on it, so I'll be playing that. Um, I've got, well, will I get to the Swedish Lutherans doing a techno mass? May not get to that today. Um, 
I definitely want to get to the Francis Chan article today, and then I got a, a news story about a Glee. And uh, the reason I'm going to be talking about Glee, and I don't, I've I've seen one episode of this uh, program, but um, the reason I'm going to be talking about it is because um, Granger uh, Community Church up there in Granger, Indiana, recently did a sermon series entitled Glee. And uh, and well, apparently, if you watch the show, then you you know that. Um, Last week was kind of a big deal for Glee. We'll talk about that, and then in hour number two, we're going to be listening to that uh, to a sermon from the sermon series at Granger Community Church uh, with the Glee theme to it. And uh, we're going to do something I've done in the past, but uh, I'm going to basically, I'm going to, as we go into the sermon review, I'm going to have a framing question that I, I want kind of at the front of your mind, and uh, that question is this. Um, imagine if you would, if that, uh, you know, that you have showed up for to Granger Community Church, um, because you've been diagnosed with, uh, terminal cancer and you've got less than a month to live. And the reason why you went to Granger Community Church is because you were looking for eternal answers. You're, you, you really, really, really need something at this point because you're, you know, that you're going to be dead within 30 days and, and see if, this sermon is able to communicate at all the vital, important salvation message and and confront you with your sins and confront you with the biblical gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross, bled and died for the forgiveness of your sins, that he was pierced for your transgressions, that he was bruised for your iniquities, and the punishment that brings you peace was upon him. See if this... Yeah, you know, so if would you leave the, that church, you know, that morning, um, having heard that uh, about the wrath of God, having heard about your sins, having heard about the solution offered by God for your sins, and that being Jesus Christ, and being told that uh, faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins is uh, is uh, what secures peace with God, and ultimately you know and truly salvation uh, is that really you know what you're going to hear in this or are you going to hear something that really um departs from scripture and could really just be viewed as um psychological platitudes so uh just you know that's what we're going to be doing so make yourself comfortable we've got a lot a lot a lot of ground to cover and uh, with that we'll dive into the program proper of course if uh, uh if you want to wear fuzzy bunny slippers weather permitting that's a great thing to help enhance your listener experience um if you want to enjoy an adult beverage we do not have a problem with that you can enjoy an adult beverage while listening to fighting for the faith keep in mind that drunkenness is a sin and uh, and you don't want to be enslaved to a gift that God has given us. That's kind of silly. So without any further ado, let's dive into the program. Here is a recent video. If you want to see this, you can find this at alittleleaven.com. It's the Museum of Idolatry. And the name of this is The Blessing Zone. Some uh, creative folks, um, after listening to a recently concluded sermon series by Ed Young Jr. on The Blessing Zone, have put together a rap kind of hip-hop-ish recap of uh, what was taught to them and see if this sounds like biblical Christianity to you or the historic Christian faith to you or something very different. Here we go. A-O-E-Y Yeah, I was here last week We were talking about 
living in the zone. I take a man and help my memory. Is there some stuff that I need for my life? Wisdom so deep, incredible. Turn up the bass, turn up the treble. We about to take it to a whole other level. In, in the zone, the in the zone. zone. Say it with me. In the zone. In the zone is the sweet spot of God's success. At all campuses. In the zone. You'll notice the God camp. This is how God sees you and me. In the zone is the sweet spot of God's success. Sweet spot. He wants to bless you and he wants to bless me. I receive it. However, we're not blessable unless we're in the, the zone. Right. Am I going too fast? No. To be in the zone means to live in the blessed place. What does that mean? To be blessed is to be on the receiving end of the tangible and intangible favor of God. You're talking about the things you can and can't see. Word. Somebody clap right now. In, in the, zone, the zone. zone. Say it with me. In, in the, the zone. zone. When I'm blessable, I realize God is the blessed. When I'm blessable. Oh, wow. So apparently you got to make yourself blessable because, uh, well, if you don't, then you're not. And if you're not, then you're not getting the tangible and intangible blessings of God's favor because you haven't made yourself blessable. So you, the way you make yourself blessable is to do the things that put you in the blessing zone. Mm-hmm. Sir, say blesser. Blesser. I'm blessed. Say blessed. Blessed. And I'm blessed to be a blessing. Say that. I'm blessed, blessed to be a blessing. blessing. We either live in the blessed place or the land of Ing. What's that? Do you live in the land of Ing? I don't know. Well, mm, land of Ing. Oh, sounds terrible. Earn Ing. How's Ing? Bling, bling, ka-ching, ka-ching. Earn Ing. How's Ing? Bling, bling, ka-ching, ka-ching. And I think I've been living in the land of Ing. What happens if I get in the zone? What does that mean for my Ing? Break it down, Ed. God wants to put his bless on your Ing. He wants to put his bless on your Ing. Bless on your Ing. Ing. Bless on your Ing. Boom, 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 boom. Bless on your Ing. In the zone. Say it with me. In the zone. In the zone is the sweet spot of God's success. At all campuses. In the So there you go. God wants to put his uh, bless on your ing. And uh, yeah, all you got to do is make yourself blessable. Yeah, after hearing that, and uh, I mean, that's the recap that they came up with uh, using music. You know, basically putting his theology to music. I mean, does that sound anything like the historic, orthodox, Christian faith? That God wants to bless your ing, but you've got to make yourself blessable? That's a complete confusion of law and gospel. Yeah, the, the reason God blesses Christians, remember Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It is by faith and trust in Jesus Christ that we receive Christ's forgiveness. You see, on the cross, our wickedness, our sinfulness, all of our rebellion, all of our disobedience, every single sin that you've committed from the time you were conceived until the moment when you draw your last breath here on planet Earth, every one of those sins 
was atoned for and God's wrath propitiated by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He was pierced for our transgressions. And see, when we're brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus' perfect righteousness is imputed to you as if you're the one who lived it. So if you're covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ, is there anything that you can do to add to perfection? Is there anything that you have to do to make yourself blessable? This kind of talk about you making yourself blessable puts you back under the law. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was preaching against in his letter, harshly written letter to the Galatian churches. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be condemned, Paul says. And then he lays into him in Galatians chapter 3. Starts off really with these harsh words. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, making yourself blessable, if you would, or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Yeah, when you talk about God wants to bless your ing, that you've got to make yourself blessable by putting yourself in the blessing zone, that's all law talk. It's not faith talk. It's all law. And what's missing? The good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins, the free forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross, and his perfect righteousness being imputed to us. Yeah, that sounds uh, more word faithy by the minute. Kind of sad. Pray for the folks that are being deceived by um, Ed Young Jr. But then again, keep in mind, yeah, it's really difficult, really difficult to you know, continue to make the money month after month you know, year after year in order to pay for his $16 million jet and its maintenance and its jet fuel costs and things like that. Very, very difficult. So, you know, you, you know, but, you know, this idea that you can be in the blessing zone if you make yourself blessable and then God will put his bless on your ing by things that you do. Well, that sells to the masses, but it's not historic biblical Christianity. It's something completely different. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevance. 
We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're gonna be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You know, so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, in order for you to make yourself blessable, you have to keep God's law perfectly. If you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking every one of them, and therefore you're not blessable. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, Donate. The other says, Join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, 
and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, here's a story I didn't get to last week, but um, I'm glad I can get to it today. But that requires me to play this. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth in me. Mm-hmm. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle and beauty to my face. That means we're doing a Joel Osteen update. Let's go for the next verse. Brush gargle rinse a couple breath mints, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth so awesome, just like a favorite song. My shiny teeth that blossom, so they grow to be real strong. My shiny teeth, I love them, and they all love me. Why should I talk to you when I've got 32? Shiny teeth and me. Yeah, that's right. Our Joel Osteen update. Uh, that's, I think, um, from the Fairly Odd Parents, my uh, shiny teeth and me. Anyway, uh, from the Christian Post, the headline reads, uh, Joel Osteen welcomes Oprah Winfrey and Tyler Perry to Lakewood Church. Television mogul Oprah Winfrey and stage and moose, uh, movie producer Tyler Perry created a stir with a surprise appearance at Pastor Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. Uh, for an 11 a.m. service. This, it was last Sunday, but uh, Joel Osteen said, Awesome to have you, said Osteen, announcing their presence and welcoming the celebrities to the church. We're so honored to have you both here. Yeah, I tell you what, let, let, me, uh, let me have Joel Osteen say it himself. Uh, yeah, here's what he said uh, to Oprah and Tyler Perry. Here we go. Today we are so honored to have a world changer, a history maker... <laughs> One of the great voices of our generation, Ms. Oprah Winfrey, is right here on the floor with us. Hey, Oprah. Yeah, one of the greatest priestesses of false theology, false doctrine, a false Jesus mysticism and universalism that ever walked the earth, Oprah Winfrey. Glad to have you. All right. Awesome to have you. We love you. We pray for you. Oprah brought a friend with her today. He's an entrepreneur, an actor. Uh, just Tyler Perry is with us as well. Mr. Tyler Perry. All right. Awesome. You, you know, how much do you want to bet that uh, Oprah wasn't, didn't feel uncomfortable at all uh, at there at Lakewood uh, hearing um, the message that Joe Osteen preaches? I bet you anything she wasn't confronted with her sin she wasn't con- uh, confronted with her false doctrine, her false theology, her false gospel, and the fact that she's been teaching, you know, falsely about Jesus. And and nor how much do you want? But she also wasn't to- brought to repentance and the forgiveness of her sins either. You know, just you know, just I'm just hanging it out there as you know. Uh, Joel Osteen probably didn't do any of the tough work that would be needed to do with Oprah Winfrey. Well, thank y'all so much. 
Well, so honored to have you both here. And we just, we just celebrate, we pray for you guys and just what God's doing in your lives. But anyway, glad to have all of you. Yeah, what do you think God's doing in Oprah's life? Um, hopefully bringing her to repentance of her false theology. Anyway, so, yeah, the, the, this did make the Christian post. Um, so uh, Winfrey was in the area to interview Osteen as part of her new series, Oprah's Next Chapter, which is set to premiere in January on her channel, the Oprah Winfrey Network. She reportedly jo- uh, joined Osteen and his wife, Victoria, for lunch at their home and discussed topics with them such as power, marriage, and faith. Uh, according, you know, these are all topics that, that uh, were divulged to the Houston Chronicle. The non-denominational evangelical Christian megachurch located in Houston, Texas, and headed by Osteen, is the largest congregation in the country, averaging over 40,000 attendees per week. Osteen, author of numerous books on spirituality, no, they're self-help, it's not even Christianity, and whose services are broadcast worldwide, has been known to spark controversy in the Christian community on his views about certain fundamental beliefs of the church, such as uh, homosexuality. Yeah, anyway, so there you go. Uh, you know, Joel Osteen welcoming Oprah there to his church. Okay, moving along. From the churchleaders.com website, Francis Chan has written an op-ed piece entitled, Failure to Help the Poor Could Send You to Hell. Failure to help the poor could send you to hell. Now, we got a problem here. Right off, I mean, just from the the headline, we got a problem. This is a confusion of the biblical categories of law and gospel. Let me let me help you out here. Romans chapter three will help untangle this for you all if you're not familiar with these categories. Okay, God's law demands from you. And the problem is you don't keep God's law. It's God's law that condemns you. It doesn't save you. If you want to be saved by keeping God's law, then you, God doesn't grade on the curve when it comes to the law. When it comes to the law, it's the, the score, the, the, literally, the, te- the test's scores are either zero or 100%. There is no bell curve. So either you have perfectly kept God's law and you will earn your salvation based upon God's law, or you are guilty of breaking God's law, and God's law will not and cannot save you. You have to look elsewhere for salvation because you will not find it in your own self-righteousness and your law-keeping. Plain and simple, that's what it comes down to. So if you haven't kept God's law perfectly, um, you're damned. Plain and simple. And God's law doesn't save you in part. Because the Apostle James makes it clear in his epistle that if you are guilty of breaking even one commandment, you are guilty of breaking them all. So one of the ways I like to talk about this is that uh, if, you have co- if you've committed a sin today, you, know, you look at the Ten Commandments, and by the way, you have... If you don't think you have, you're not looking at the law. and Well, you're not looking accurately into the mirror of the law. You're, you're blurring the image so that you don't have to come to grips with reality. But every single infraction of God's law is like a tenfold infraction. If you've broken one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. And so uh, if you just think of the Ten Commandments as like the, the, the primary commandments there, then every single sin is a tenfold sin. That's probably a good way of putting it. So uh, if you intend to be saved 
or to be made blessable by keeping the law, then you have to keep it perfectly. You don't get to chop it up into tiny little pieces and say, oh, well, I've kept this one perfectly, but I, I need just a little improvement over here on this one. No, every single sin, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing, okay? God doesn't compartmentalize when it comes to righteousness. Either you are righteous or you are not, plain and simple. Let me give you a, a help here. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Uh, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How many are righteous? Not even one. Of those who are natural descendants of Adam and Eve, there's not one person who is righteous, not even one. So now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by works of the law, not one human being will be declared righteous in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let me read that again. For, this is Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being, not even one, will be declared righteous in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21. So what's your hope in mind? But now the righteousness of God, the diakasune, de theu, his righteousness, the righteousness of God, uh, manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared righteous in God's sight by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. Okay? Verse 28 kind of caps it up. For we hold that one is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Your obedience has absolutely zero, absolutely zero impact on whether or not you were declared righteous in God's sight. Unless, of course, you don't have faith. If you're a Christian, you are declared righteous purely by what Christ has done, apart from works. It's all gift. Now that you've been set free in Christ, you are now free to obey because you've been set free from sin, death, and the devil. 
So already, you know, th- th- it's important that you get these categories worked out because Francis Chan here, we've got a problem. This is a confusion of the biblical categories of law and gospel. Okay, so the headline reads, failure to help the poor could send you to hell. Well, if that's the case, then your salvation, your justification, somehow in part depends upon your law-keeping then, wouldn't it? Francis Chan writes, The other morning I woke up to start writing, as I've been doing for the past few weeks, and I decided to do something different. I closed my laptop and just read through all of the passages on hell. I didn't think about writing. I didn't try to figure out all the nitty-gritty details of the text. It, I just let the New Testament speak in its power and simplicity. And there are some of the shocking things that God hit me with. Um, you fool. Jesus threatens hell to those who curse their brother, Matthew 5.22. He's not warning drinkers or smokers or murderers. Jesus preaches hellfire against those who have the audacity to attack a fellow human being with harsh words. It's ironic, frightening actually, that some people have written books, preached sermons, or written blog posts about hell and miss this point completely. In fact, some people have slammed their Christian brothers and sisters in the process simply because they have a different view of hell. Missing the purpose of Matthew 5, whoever calls his brother a fool may be may find himself guilty of hell. Have you called your brother a fool lately? On a blog, on a Facebook, have you tweeted anything of the sort? Well, it's funny, I just read this uh, from Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Hmm. We continue. So often these hell passages become fodder for debate and people miss the point of the warning. Jesus didn't speak of hell so that we could study, debate, and write books about it. He gave us these passages so that we would live holy lives, stop slandering one another, and live in peace and brotherly unity. Jesus evidently hates it when we tear into our brothers or sisters with demeaning words, words that fail to honor the people around us as the beautiful image-bearing creatures that they are. Yeah, well, the problem is is that we're all sinners um, by nature now. That image-bearing thing is broken. <clears throat> Next. And what about the poor? Jesus is crystal clear about the necessity of reaching the poor, yet many hellfire preachers are overfed and overpaid, living in luxury while doing nothing for the majority of Christians who live on less than $2 a day. Contrast that with Jesus, who in his longest sermon about judgment made a uh, a helping the poor a vital criterion. Put simply, failing to help the poor could damn you to hell. I know, I know everyone wants to qualify this. We want to add all sorts of footnotes to fix Jesus' shaky theology in Matthew 25. Justification is by faith, not by works. You don't really have to help the poor, uh, the help the literal poor, etc. On the flip side, some uh, want to help, uh, want to keep the, the stuff about helping the poor, but take health out of the picture. Sometimes people even take Jesus out of the picture. Fighting poverty, they believe, is an inherent virtue whether or not it's rooted in the gospel. So let's uh, let's keep the teeth of both truths. There's a literal hell, and helping the poor is essential. Not only did Jesus teach both of these truths, he saw them as necessary and interrelated. Now, I'm going to point something out here. Okay, Chan has engaged, in basically, the, uh, the, this is the classic wrong way of understanding Matthew 25. Matthew 25. It, this is a regularly misunderstood passage. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to start at verse 31. Does this teach that if you don't f- uh, feed the poor that you will go to hell? 
Is that what this is passage is saying? Now keep in mind, I just read to you the passages that clearly teach regarding justification, that we are saved by grace through faith as a gift, apart from works of the law. That's what the clear passage says. Therefore, whatever Jesus is saying here in Matthew 25 is not contrary to that. If it is, then Jesus and Paul have two completely different theologies. Okay? Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. By the way, keep pointing this out every time I go to this passage. By this point in this story, the judgment has already taken place. Separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. The judgment has already taken place, and the judgment is based on what you are. If you are a sheep, you're on the right. If you're a goat, you're on the left. It's already taken place. You are judged by what you are. So then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will say to him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink. When did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? Pay close attention now to the answer. Okay, so Jesus said, come you who are blessed. They're already, they're already judged. Remember, they're separated already. He says to the sheep, come you who are blessed. I was naked, and you clothed me, hungry, and you fed me. Is, the, is Jesus talking about social justice here? Is he talking that if you don't feed the poor, then you're not saved? If so, then Jesus is teaching salvation by works. But notice what he says here. Verse 40. Then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is speaking specifically not about social justice, nor is Jesus saying, if you don't feed the poor, then you're liable to hell. He's talking uh, to Christians. Why? Because they welcomed Jesus' brothers and took care of them and fed them and clothed them. Who are Jesus' brothers? The disciples and the disciples of the disciples. You can think of them today as our pastors and teachers who bring to us the gospel. It is caring for the brothers of Jesus, receiving the Christians, hearing their message, protecting them. And when they were arrested and persecuted, visiting them in prison, you get what I'm saying here? That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about just some grand feed the poor thing at all. And so here's the problem. When you take a look closely at the passage, it's clear that Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. Yet what Chan is saying, he's trying to basically through his sloppy 
hermeneutics, his sloppy exegesis, is trying to to somehow shoehorn works back into the equation. So let me read again to you from the tail end of Romans chapter 3, because here's what the clear passage says. Verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 28, We hold that one is declared righteous or justified by faith apart from works of the law. Chapter 4. So what shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was declared righteous by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted or credited to him as righteous, as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies or declares righteous, the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So, yeah, the problem here with Francis Chan is he's confusing the biblical categories of law and gospel and somehow trying to make it sound like Jesus' theology is different than the Apostle Paul's and that we need to clean up Jesus' theology. No, we don't. When you read the passage and you take a look at the details, it's clear that Jesus isn't teaching a theology of works. Francis Chan was the one who was responsible for confusing the text, not Jesus. Jesus nowhere teaches salvation by works. He, along with the apostles that he trained, teach salvation by grace through faith as a gift from God, apart from works. It's all gift. Sad. Okay. All right. We are up on our second break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be... listening to a sermon from Granger Community Church uh, from a sermon series that had glee as the background. And I'll be reading a little bit of a news story uh, ahead of it so that you can kind of get something of of an idea as to how um, inappropriate this now is. And it was even inappropriate at the time that it was uh, preached. But uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. (laughs) 
listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. news story to go along with this too. Let's cue up the music first. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Granger Community Church, Granger, Indiana. The name of the sermon is Glee. That's the sermon series. The sermon itself is entitled, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Now, I'm not familiar with the guy who actually preached this sermon. I'll see if I can figure it out, uh, who he is, as the sermon unfolds. But uh, this is somebody from um, Granger that I'm not familiar with. Now, our, what we're going to do in this sermon, I, I just want you to ask yourself this question. If you had found out today that you've got 30 days to live and you're not a Christian, would you find salvation in this sermon? Would you have been confronted with your sins and understand that even the cancer that you've been diagnosed with is a result of your trespasses and sins against God. You're you're going to receive the wages of your sin. And would you have Jesus Christ and him placarded for the forgiveness of your sins? Or is this something completely different that we're hearing? Now, I got to admit, I haven't heard the whole sermon. I've left maybe about 10 minutes left with the hope that uh, somebody who is dying would hear the biblical gospel. Don't know. 
But that's what we're going to try to figure out. So uh, let me kill the music here. All right. Um, so without any further ado, here is the sermon entitled Glee, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Now, I'm going to interrupt this and read kind of a news story a little bit later in the sermon. But, uh, you know, keep in mind, the whole goal of a sermon series named Glee is to, you know, ride the coattails of a, of a very, very popular television program. So uh, with that, here we go. Here's the sermon entitled, Don't Worry. Oh, by the way, the guy's name is Bob Laurent. Bob Laurent. This is a guy I'm not familiar with, but the sermon is entitled, Glee, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Here we go. Welcome to Granger Community Church, beloved. It's a good thing to be able to hear the music uh, now three times for me in three different services, because sometimes it takes me a while to get it. And when Janet was singing Amazing Grace, I was just kind of letting it wash over me. Uh, and, and God is mighty to save. He can move a mountain. And I was thinking about you guys and how many of you came with worries and troubles and all kinds of stuff uh, pressuring you and causing you anxiety. And these thoughts were running through my head as the band was singing that no weapon can be formed against him. No weapon can stand against the power of Jesus Christ. I don't care how negative the enemy has been and how many frontal attacks he has made upon you this past week. This is a place you are welcome to bring your troubles to. For God cares for you. And the Bible says, because he cares for you, cast all the junk, all of your anxieties, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all of your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. Then it immediately says, for the devil, like a prowling lion, is looking for the one he can devour. Cast all of your worries upon him. I think Satan uses worry more than almost anything else in our lives to drag us down. I've been doing some research on worry. Harper's Index says this. The average American is in a bad mood 110 days out of the year. <laughs> think about that. I know you're thinking you're not, you're not in a bad mood 30% of the time, but most people are. And I see them all the time at McDonald's getting the wrong order and lashing out at the kid who makes minimum wage for giving them fries instead of whatever. Uh, I, I was driving in my car, turning left from Ironwood onto McKinley one day, and this guy behind me was so mad at me, he just kept honking his horn because he didn't want me to drive as slowly as I was. I was doing the speed limit. And the more he honked, what am I like? The slower I went. And I'm thinking, this guy just needs to get a real problem. What is he so worried about anyway? Aren't there real problems in your world? you got to make one up at the traffic light? We are a nation of worriers. Truth is, here goes, 75% of us worry about money. I'll bet you more than that. 82% of us worry about our families. 68 worry about our health. So the big... 45% the big problem apparently being solved by this uh, sermon is, well, since it's glee, don't worry, be happy. Well, it's, this is all about stopping worrying, you know, like that's the big problem that um, faces mankind. Now, keep in mind, again, the, the setup for the sermon at this point is that you've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. You'll be dead within 30 days. So, um, and at this point, you're being you're told at this church that um, you've got to... Stop worrying. Okay, yeah, that's going to be useful information. Percent of us worry about our marriages. Maybe it should be more than that, huh? Sixty-three percent of us worry about terrorism. That's interesting. Sixty-seven percent of us worry about identity theft. Do uh, do I ever worry? 
I like to think of myself as not being a worrying person. I've always thought of myself as being positive and really hopeful. But as I sat and wrote down, do I have any worries? I just, the list just kept growing. Uh, what has happened to me in the past two or three years? Things have changed in my life. Circumstances have changed. And I've become more of a worrier than I was before. And it's doing something to me. And physiologically, you know, the first time in my life, a year ago, I got uh, heartburn. You know, you get it now and then with a, with a pizza thing. But I'm starting to get it every day. And I went to the doctor and he said, why are you so uptight? And I said, uptight? I'm not uptight. He said, yes, you are. Something's going on inside you. You know, I wrote him down. I worry, you guys. I shouldn't. I know the Bible says don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. I know I'm a Christian. I know I teach Bible. But I do worry too much. I worry about my mom. I worry about how to relate to her. I worry about how to sometimes approach her. Uh, I worry about my relatives who aren't Christians yet. And I don't want them to die without Christ. Okay, so, well, I'm glad you don't want your relatives to die without Christ. But keep in mind, your job here, Pastor, is to preach the Word and to preach Christ and am crucified for our sins. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians, For I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified for our sins. So keep in mind, um, there's a good chance there's somebody there listening to you that doesn't know Christ. And in our scenario here, it's somebody who's going to be dead within 30 days. Will they hear God's law rail against their sin? And will they hear the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins as the solution so that they can know that they have peace with God through what Christ has done. I worry about this country I live in that's showing signs of, of uh, slipping into, post, into a post-Christian era, just like Europe. Weird. You know, so you're worried about the, the country that you live in that's showing signs of slipping into a post-Christian era, yet the name of the sermon series is Glee. And the the uh, the graphic created for the sermon series is the uh, you know the uh, the letter L made by you know the f one finger up and the thumb down the same way Glee does. Weird. And uh, by the way, this is a great place to uh, put this in here. This is from a a, a seeker driven youth ministers blog. Uh, the name of the uh, this is by a guy by the name of Jonathan uh, McKee, and the uh, uh, blog post uh, headline is Glee goes all the way. Again, uh, this week, Doug Fields, that's Doug Fields of, uh, of uh, Saddleback Church, posted an article of mine on his blog encouraging parents to use the pause button, the fast forward button, and even the off button on their TV remotes as they co-view media with kids. Which button does Fox's Glee require? Well, this week, Glee featured two of the show's teenage couples each losing their virginity, a homosexual couple, Kurt and Blaine, and a heterosexual, Finn and Rachel. Parents that took time to even notice the show's content this week are debating the appropriateness of it. Uh, <laughs> the PTC is outraged, as always. The articles are beginning to emerge asking relevant questions like this article from Time, which says, What teen sex on Glee really teaches kids? This isn't the first time that we've seen Glee address the subject of teenagers losing their virginity. On the 15th episode of the season, one, an episode titled The Power of Madonna, Glee introduced the same scenario when three couples faced the decision to lose their virginity. The episode was watched by 12.98 uh, million American viewers and was critically acclaimed. After a dream sequence performance of Madonna's Like a Virgin, two of these teenagers took the plunge and went all the way, Finn and Santana. 
While the others didn't, Rachel, for example, at this point, some parents began questioning whether Glee was appropriate viewing for teens and tweens. Instead of giving a dogmatic stamp of approval or disapproval, I responded with a rather detailed youth culture window article to Glee or not to Glee, encouraging parents to think biblically about Glee and to look for biblical guidance. Um, yeah, um, so I don't know about you guys, but I'm, as, as a parent of a teenager, um, I've got two adult married kids and one teenager at home, um, won't be, uh, letting my daughter watch Glee anytime soon so that she can watch a homosexual couple lose their virginity, which leads to the question, okay, Glee has had, I mean, it didn't take this pro- the program very long to steer into this direction. Um, it's kind of like the teenage version of Sex in the City. Is this appropriate as a backdrop for a sermon series at a Christian church? You know, I just I just asked the question here because that you know I thought that was an interesting side article. Um, see, the problem is is that when you when you basically think your church stands or falls on its ability to convince the unconvinced and think that somehow it's your job to make your 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 uh, uh, your church uh, sermon series relevant to the popular culture by writing the coattails of popular culture, what happens when the uh, coattails that you're writing? steers into uh well regularly uh, yeah, the con- the subject of teen sex and at this point uh a homosexual couple choosing to lose their virginity are you sure those are the coattails you want to be writing as a church i think it's a valid question considering the fact that scripture says that friendship with the world is enmity with christ we continue started about 40 years ago. We're just a little behind them. That bothers me. I worry that I haven't saved enough. I've never been a saver of money. It's like if just if there's a need, there's a need, and I just don't save, and I worry that... Yeah, saving money, that's going to help the person who's going to be dead in 30 days. ...that I'm getting older, and I'm not going to have enough to take care of my family. I, this is hard for me to admit. I worry about my teeth. <laughs> I, I, I want to hold on to them as long as I can. I want them to hold on to my food as long as they can. <laughs> and so I, I sometimes worry. I'm not good with pain, with dental pain. I worry that as I, as I get older, I'll, I'll get satisfied with my faith. And I want to keep that edge. I want to keep that uh, vulnerability. I want to stay a seeker. I want, to, I want more of God and more of his truth. And I want to have a passion to study. And I worry that I'll get complacent. Well, that's great. You want more of God and you have a passion to study. Why don't you, you know, crack open a Bible here during the sermon? Um, don't you think that'd be a good idea? I worry that I'm not as much fun as I used to be. A couple of years ago, it wouldn't bother me when the kid... Bob, I worry that you haven't opened a Bible yet. And this is supposed to be the sermon time at a church. Kids next door would pick flowers in my yard. I just go, that's okay. They enjoy them, let them. But in the past two years, it bothers me when those little kids come over and they pull the flowers. I've started turning on the sprinkling system when I see them coming. I have. I'm not proud of that. I want to be fun for my grandkids to be around. I don't want to be an old ogre. The, the, mean, the mean guy lives there. I don't want that to be said of me. I even worry, this is how sick it gets, I worry sometimes that I don't worry about the things that some people tell me I should be worrying about. You know what I mean? It is a tangled web that we weave, beloved, and we convince ourselves that worry is the right thing and we just go on worrying.
Research shows this. Two-thirds of all visits to physicians are for stress and worry-related problems. Think about that. Physical changes associated with worry may contribute to the leading causes of death. That would be heart disease and cancer. Worry can cause chronic fatigue, digestive upset, headaches, back pain. It can affect your blood cells in such a way that you can't fight off infection as you have before. Well, great. I mean, the person who wandered into the church service uh, who is dying of cancer was sitting there going, okay, so that's probably what killed me. I worried too much, and then my body couldn't fight off infection, and I became sick, and now I have malignant cancer. You got anything for that, Yeah, for a person who's dying? You're more likely to get colds. I know. I got it. Constant stress. And in 30 days, they will be dead and will never have another cold again. Stress and worry can increase your blood pressure, increase the risk of a stroke. It can make, it, it can, it can imbue, not subdue. Worry doesn't help anything. It imbues things like asthma attacks and, and all the rest of that stuff. There's nothing good about worry. Our English word worry, that, that we write worry, it comes from two old ancient English words that you wouldn't recognize if you saw them that meant literally to choke off. Isn't that interesting? This is exactly what worry does in my life. When I start worrying, it chokes off that life force that God puts inside me to face my problems. Worry doesn't motivate me to act on my problems. Worry actually sends me the opposite way, where I try to repress them, forget them, I get silent. I don't work on the stuff that God wants me to work on. Worry doesn't help anything, and that's why Jesus was adamant about it. He commanded us not to worry. Jesus said, we, we've got some, these are in your Granger notes, gang. If you've got your Granger notes, did you already look at your notes? I've got you. I've got so many blanks for you. You're thinking, no way. There's no way we're going to fill these in. Maybe, maybe. Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we wear? For people who don't follow Christ run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. Seek first his king, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. I got, I've got three emails right now uh, on my Bethel account that I'm working on. I have contacted two of them. I couldn't reach the other one on Friday before it, I shut, out, shut it down. But three different emails basically saying to me, I have reached the end of my rope financially. I've done everything I can, and these folks explain. These are members of our church who explain how hard they have tried to pay their bills. And looks like, looks like for... Well, the guy who is uh, dying of cancer and looking for answers, he won't be paying any mortgage payments uh, anytime soon. Yeah, in fact, he'd probably just wave off that last one and let somebody else pay it for him. Um, yeah, um, okay, we've got a problem here. So we've got it, the first appearance of God's Word, and it's from the classic worry passage from the uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Now, it's part way through the Sermon on the Mount. So we've got a problem here, is, and that is, is that it's out of context. And um, and so you know we got a problem is we got to put it in context. So let well um, let me start by well, well Matthew if you got your Bible flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew chapter six. I'll start at verse twenty four and we'll see if we can kind of figure out clearly what's being taught here, what's going on here because Jesus here is is chastising and rebuking his audience. Okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and how they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. So here Jesus is rebuking them for not trusting God and putting their trust in money. Because remember, verse 24 sets the stage for the segment of the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And here at this point, he's rebuking them for worrying and being anxious about and chasing after food, money, clothing, things of that nature, right? And basically saying, look, just look at nature. God cares about sparrows and he cares about grass. Are you not more valuable to God than they are? And look, he cares for them. And he says, oh, you of little faith. Not little obedience, little faith, okay? So um, let's continue. So if God, verse 30, I'll just back it up. So if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Well, a good cross-reference to this is found in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians Chapter 3. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Look out for the dogs. This is verse 2. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them, all of his works under the law, I count them as rubbish. It's a lot stronger in the Greek. Think of dog do. 
in order, so I count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith, the righteousness that's from God, that depends on faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is to seek the righteousness that comes by faith. That's why Jesus chastised these folks in the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, you of little faith. Jesus is rebuking them for their lack of faith, their lack of belief, their lack of trust in God. And he's telling them to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, the righteousness that is given by faith, as a gift, by God, through grace. And all these things will be taken care of. They'll be all added to you. Your your heavenly father knows that you need them. And so what's interesting here is that Bob from Granger reads this passage and he just barrels through it and misses the gospel right there wedged in this text. It's right there. And if he'd taken time to read the text and exegete the text and tell us what it means, he would have been able to preach the gospel just like I did. Preach the gospel to the one who was dying and term and diagnosed with terminal cancer and will be dead within 30 days they would have heard the gospel would have heard about the righteousness of faith right we continue closure looks like my kids won't be able to do this looks like we won't uh, be able to uh, eat the way we have normally eaten what well, what am i going to do looks like i have to give up the car that i bought because i can't make payments on it All I'm saying to you is you worrying about it isn't going to get any of that stuff fixed. And Jesus said, consider the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into birds. Barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You think God taking care of a sparrow means he's too busy with them that he won't take care of you? Jesus says, on the contrary. He is crazy about you and can't wait for you to give up the worry fight and just relax in him and trust in him and let him do what he does best. Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. And yet your heavenly Father clothes them. Solomon in all of his glory wasn't clothed like one of these. If God then so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And so when my friends share these problems with me and give me this rough economic history, instead of me saying to them, listen, now you've got another guy to carry the worry. You know what I say? You have got resources you haven't even tapped into yet. You've told me, I can tell others. This is what the church is about. One beggar helping another beggar find bread. Instead of... Okay, yes, yes, yes. Worrying, be the church. Be a part of the church and let us help. And I don't mean just the staff at this church. I mean the 6,000 or more people who are going to attend services. One, One person helping another person. This is the miracle of the church. So stop worrying. So the miracle of the church is one person helping another person. You said it's uh, one beggar helping another beggar find bread? That's referring to the gospel. Beloved, and then you've got a whole bunch of scriptures I put in your Granger notes just to help those of you who, like me, worry too much. Why did Jesus tell us not to worry? For at least these three reasons. Because worry, you want to write it down? By the way, 
each each service, it seems that I never fill in the ninth blank. Look in your grade, you know, I'm going to give it to you now so nobody comes up to me and says, you skip number nine. Number nine is be, uh, I, don't, I can't see it here. Number nine is be generous. Be more generous. I tell you the truth unless you, nope. Number eight, I, I, I keep skipping eight. I just skipped it again, didn't I? Number eight, be generous. Give it away now. Be generous. Maybe I'll get to that. Maybe I won't. Worry, worry is irrelevant. That's the first blank that you're filling in. Worry is ir irrelevant. Doesn't change anything. You want to see the statistics on it? I'll show them to you. Yeah, so now we're still so apparently there's three reasons why Jesus told us not to worry, but the reason that Jesus gave is because they had little faith, and the reason he specifically gave is because you can't serve God and money, and he wants you to have faith and trust in God. We just read it in the text. Will that be a reason given? Fifty percent. Researchers say fifty percent of what you worry about never comes to pass. Doesn't even happen. And yet you worry, and you expend incredible uh, nervous and emotional energy on it, and your body starts to feel the effect of it. 30% of what you worry about happened a long time ago. At least it happened in the past, and there's nothing you can do about that now. 10% of what you worry about relates to your health. Now, how ironic is that? Because you know now that worrying about stuff hurts your health. It doesn't help. Yeah, the, so the person who's dying of cancer, who's like, again, this is the hypothetical, who went to this church, to find out, you know, something about God because they know they're going to meet God soon within 30 days. Is this really helping them? Help your health. So you worry about your health. 10% of what you worry about is legitimate. Just 10% research says is legitimate. But worrying is not going to change that 10%. So number two, worry is irresponsible, isn't it? It is not a responsible thing for you to, to let all of that amazing power... And yet Jesus makes it clear that those who are worrying have no or little faith and trust in God. ...power that you've got inside you leak out in little worry holes all over your psyche. It's not, it's not going to help you. You need to gather those resources together to face the real problems that God has you, has you to face. And last of all, maybe the most important part, is worry is irreverent. It just forgets about God, that's all. Forgets what he's done, forgets what he can do. I know you're as human as I am, and I know what you worry about. I know you do not worry about stuff that you're sure of. Even if I know I've got a problem, even if I know I've got to go to traffic court and pay, if I know that there's something bad coming, I, at least I know it, and so I prepare myself emotionally for it. I prepare myself to pay the, to pay the, the fine. I, I do what I have to do. But it's the stuff that you're not sure of that keeps you awake at night. You worry, you're human, you worry about the things that you're not sure of. And everybody's got a different bucket of worries, the things they're not sure of. Some guy will lie in bed at night, and I know because I, I listen to their stories, and, and think to himself, he'll worry himself sick. Does my wife really love me? She turned over, she went to sleep, she won't let me touch her, we never do the marriage thing anymore. Does my wife still love me? And he worries himself sick. And some, some wives have the same feeling about her husband. I, I'm, I just, I, I'm just feeling like there's maybe something going on at work. He's just not what he used to be when we dated. He's not like he was the first few years of marriage. Am I losing him? Or maybe parents are lying there wide-eyed thinking, well, I know my kids are out right now and I'm worried about them. And are they being good kids? And just worry, 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 worry. And it is literally killing you physically and spiritually. What do you do about it, beloved? So the big problem is that you worry. Jesus attributes this to their lack of faith and trust in God. His solution is to seek first the kingdom of God and his, God's righteousness, which is Christ.
his righteousness given to us by grace through faith. That's Jesus' solution. What will be his, what will be Bob's solution? What do you think? What do you think the solution here? Will he point us to the righteousness of Christ and point out how we can have faith and should have faith and trust in God? Hmm? Uh, one thing you should do is read this quote from William Barclay, the guy who wrote the Everyday Bible. This is amazing. William Barclay? One of the finest quotes I've ever read about worry. Those who feed their hearts on God's record, those who feed their hearts on the record of what God has done in the past, will never worry about the future. Well, that's great. Why don't you give us a whole lot of instances of what God has done in the past and you know, tell us his record so that we can feast on those and trust in him. Worry refuses to learn the lesson of the past. We are still alive and our heads are still above water. And yet if someone had told us that we would have to go through what we actually have just gone through, we would say, that's impossible. We could have never done it. The lesson of life is that somehow we have been enabled to bear the unbearable, to do the undoable, and to pass the breaking point without breaking. Uh, you know, that's what Jesus did. This is God's record in my life. The lesson of life is that with God's love, worry is unnecessary. So I'm studying worry, and I'm watching people who worry, and I'm, uh, I'm, and I'm recording my own worries, and, uh, and I come across this thing on the Internet that says the ten things, ten things that science says will make... Ten things that science says will make you happy. And I thought, well, I'm going to skip over this because I want to find out what the Bible says. But I decided to read it anyway, and I thought, wow, this is so cool. Because the ten... So you're not going to teach us what the Bible says. You're going to tell us what this Internet page said. Okay. Things that scientific research has shown will make you happy, almost guarantee happiness, were already in the Bible way before they found them. Hey, all truth is God's truth. I don't care if we just discovered it. You're going to find it in Proverbs. It'll be in Matthew. It'll be all over the Word of God. And so these are, the, these are nine of the ten things that science... I, I, I substituted one of them. Can you figure out which one uh, I did? Uh, number one, savor everyday moments. That's there. Savor everyday moments and learn to rest. Isn't that a God thing to say? So do I need a crucified and risen Savior to savor every moment? Keep in mind, there's somebody in the audience who has terminal cancer and is going to die and be dead within 30 days. So... Your advice to them, just savor every moment that you got. They've got less than a month. Not much to savor. Walk in the good way, and you will find rest for yourselves. Come unto me, Bobby, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Yeah, but God, I, I, you know, I don't want to bother you. <laughs> this, this is his middle name is Rescue. That's who he is. He is God with us. Whether you like it or not, he is with us. So you might as well. He's going to stay up all night anyway. The God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. Just give it to him. Why should you stay up all night? He's going to be up all night. Just give it to him. Pills can give you sleep. They will never give you rest. You have got to dump this at the cross of Jesus Christ. I am telling you, he is there for you. Rest in him. According to psychologist Sonia, with his crazy last name, people who take time to savor ordinary moments that they normally would hurry through they show significant increases in happiness and reductions in depression. Rest in him. He cares for you. Number two, put money low on the list. Isn't that cool that science writes that? Put money low on the list. And Jesus says, what good will it do you if you gain the entire world and lose your own soul? 
The scientific research writes, people who put money high on their priority list are more at risk for depression, anxiety, low self-esteem. Their findings hold true across nations, across cultures. It's the same way in Afghanistan, same way in Tanzania, same way in America, same way across all cultures. People who put the weight of their life in material possessions are never, they never find happiness. The more people, they write, seek satisfaction in material goods, the less they find them. Material satisfaction has a very short half-life, they write. It's so fleeting. Money seekers always score lower on tests of vitality and self-actualization. It's like C.S. Lewis wrote. You aim, for, you aim for heaven, God throws in the earth. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. You aim for heaven, God gives you every good thing. He will withhold no good thing from you. So just aim for heaven. Okay, so there's some practical advice. Just seek first the kingdom of God. He's not even explaining what that means. It's apparently self-evident. But to the um, the uh, non-Christian pagan who's going to be dying of cancer within 30 days, is this self-evident? Just aim for heaven and you get the earth in exchange. Well, they're not going to have the earth in 30 days. <laughs> but you aim for earth. If it's all about earth and you... Then you will. Then you get neither. Lewis wrote, "You get neither. You don't get heaven. You don't get earth. You aim for earth. You don't get earth. You get worries. What you what you own will wind up owning you. It's it's as true as, as when God said it. That would be idolatry. That's the sin of idolatry. Why don't you cover that for what it is? Because Jesus talks about it there in the Sermon of the Mount. You cannot serve God and money. That's idolatry. In Proverbs. There are two ways to get enough, the way I see it. You can either accumulate more and more, accumulate more and more, which never works, or you can desire less. The story of the guy who went to a monastery to find the answer to life, and he checks in, and the priest comes down to his room and says, what are you here for? I want to find out what life is really all about. And the priest said, okay, if you wake up in the middle of the night, I just want you to know while you're here, whatever your needs are, whatever you need, just call me. And I'll come down to your room and explain to you why you don't need it. I, I think this is Jesus. Nothing God sends your way. Let me put it this way. Even, even difficult times. Everything God sends your way or allows to happen to you is necessary for your life. Nothing he withholds from you is necessary for your life. Nothing he withholds from you is necessary for your life. Think about it. Number three, avoid comparisons. Learn to be content. Yeah, this has been my problem all my life. Boy, that guy, I had a roommate who was the best-looking guy in college, and the girls always called the room, and I'd pick up the phone hoping one would call for me. It was always for him. I got to where this guy bothered me. He also, I was the, I was the sixth uh, guy on the basketball team, so I'd sit on the bench hoping he would get three or four fouls so I could get into the game. He was not only good-looking, he could shoot better than I could shoot. I was never content around this guy. I just, I wasn't a Christian. What I know? I didn't know what life was about. This guy wound up with a very difficult life because, because he made choices. Instead of turning toward Christ, he turned toward stuff. I turned toward Jesus and he gave me life. I learned to be content with what he gave me. As crazy as it sounds, even the hard times. Yeah, even the hard times. The longer, it, it, it is an irony, isn't it? 
The longer you walk with God, the longer you walk in the valley of the shadow of death. And why do you do that? Because you're connected to people. And to be connected to people is to be connected to pain. And everybody you know is going through hard times. You don't know a person who doesn't struggle with work. I just want to point something out. He, at this point, I mean, he's just throwing you know all these ideas out. But I, how many of these are actually grounded in scriptures, uh, biblical passages, or are, imp- are direct implications and correct teaching from clear passages? Hmm? and difficulty. And when you love them, they're your children, they're your mate, they're your neighbors, they're people here at the church that you're crazy about. Some of them are sitting in wheelchairs today. And because they hurt, you hurt. That's a part of the deal. That is a part of the deal. You share in their sorrow, you rejoice in their rejoicings. And so I'm telling you, the longer you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and don't tell me you're not walking there, because if you're not, there's something wrong. The more you start to sense this supernatural kind of joy that you can't explain. The closer Jesus got to the cross, the more he talked about the cup, his cup of joy overflowing. What kind of joy is this? Number four. Yeah, do you, can you give us an example from a clear passage? I'm not familiar with what you're talking about. You want real happiness? Scientists say, they actually said, go do something that matters. They wrote, go do something that matters. I wrote, I wrote, get on mission. That's what they're always saying around this wonderful church. Get on mission and do something that matters, something that changes people's lives. Jesus says, go make disciples. So do something that changes people's lives. Uh, what about the guy who's dying within 30 days? Um, what, what, what's he supposed to do at this point? Of all nations, no matter what you've heard before, this is the truth. Success in life is finding what God wants you to do and then doing that. So success in life is finding what God wants you to do and then doing it. Um, again, um, what are you going to say to the person who's dying within 30 days? What's the, what's the big thing they're supposed to do? It's finding out who God wants you to be and then being that. Doing what he wants you to do, being who, you, who he wants you to be. And if that means you're going to change vocations, yes, you will. My wife works at Bethel, and all the time she gets phone calls from people. She says, white-collar professionals. She gets calls from lawyers and some physicians and people who are doing really well in insurance and other kinds of things. And you'd think, you know, that's helping people. But they call her and say, I want to get into the transition to teaching program because I want to teach elementary school kids. I want to get them before they're jaded. I want to teach kids in middle school. I want to make a difference in a life that is at a foundational period in their life. And I want, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. There's something inside them saying, I want to do something, what, that matters. Science says that'll make you happier. Happier people. Number five, make friends and treasure family. Above all else, God says, love one another deeply. That's got to be the best verse for raising a family and having a friendship. Love one another deeply, for love covers over all the junk, all the sins that they've committed against you, everything wrong you've done. Love one another deeply, 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 going deeper, going deeper into his love. Number five, make friends and treasure family. Make friends and treasure family. Happier people tend to have good families, says research. Happier people tend to have good friends, supportive relationships. But you don't just need acquaintances, the scientist writes. You just don't need colleagues. You need intimate friends. How do you get that? Every Frodo needs a Sam. Every David needs a Jonathan. Every Mark Beeson needs a Tim Stevens. You need you you are an echo of the Trinity. You're not going to make it by yourself. You are an echo of the Trinity. Oh man. I have actually met a college student who got to her senior year in college and never had a conversation with another human being. Never. 
She went to lecture right before it started. She took her notes and went right back to her room. She waited till food service was almost over in the cafeteria. She ran down, got a box, box kind of meal, took it back to her room and ate it. She did that for three and a half years. And in the second semester of her senior year, she was dying emotionally and spiritually. And she slipped up to me after class one day and she said, this is the first time I have talked to anybody. And I want to know how, how I can make a friend. What do you think? Um, Shannon Culpepper, a photographer, took this picture. And the reason I'm showing it to you is because she entitled it Joy. Where does joy come from? Where does joy come from? If the dad... Down in my heart... <clears throat> Sorry. That just how, isn't that how the song goes? I got that joy, joy, joy. Never mind. Dad wasn't there and the little kid was shooting the basket. He still might be smiling. And maybe he'll even make the basket. Although, looking at that kid, if that bucket's 10 feet up there, there's no way that ball's going, right? But it's the dad who's there with him that makes it joy. If the dad was removed, it would just, she could entitle it happiness. I'm happy I made the shot. Or if the kid was gone and the dad was there, that would look kind of stupid, wouldn't it? Joy always comes with people. <laughs> joy never comes out of community. It doesn't. You tell me anywhere in Scripture where, where you see that joy comes outside of the people in your life. It's always in relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, yeah, how much time do you think the person who's dying and will be dead in 30 days has time, you know, like to build these relationships and community so that they can experience happiness and joy? That's why Pearl S. Buck, who got a Pulitzer for writing the book The Good Earth. That's Which, by the way, The Good Earth is not, is not a, one of the books of Scripture. Just want to let you know. That's why she said this. If you try to live alone, Bob, you will not succeed as a human being. You want to succeed? Get friends. Your heart withers if it does not answer another heart. Your mind shrinks away if you hear only the echo of your own thoughts. And Jesus Christ looks at a watching world, at a lonely watching world. I look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? From all over the place. They're all around my life. They're in every street, on every street corner, in every class. They're at every gas station. Every so this is the Eleanor Rigby uh, metaphor now. Every restaurant. And there's nothing lonelier than being lonely in the middle of a crowd. And Jesus said, said, I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. And then he goes out and dies for us. Number six, science says, say thank you like you mean it. Don't you think it's interesting that scientists know something about those? Uh, then, then they write. This. How come Jesus didn't give this list? Doesn't he know better than scientists? The psychologist actually wrote about these, uh, what do you call them? Thank you, thank you uh, notes. Not thank you notes. What they, what they call them? Gratitude. Uh, they call them gratitude letters. People who write gratitude letters, they write up in their, in their uh, article. People who write gratitude letters to someone who made a difference in their lives. Have you ever done that? They score higher on happiness and lower on depression. You ought to just try that. You, you, you ought to try it. You have nothing to lose. Take two minutes and write a gratitude letter to somebody who helped you get through college or somebody who birthed you or somebody uh, who, who loved you and helped you through a hard time. Write a gratitude letter today. Send it to them because guess what happens? They are happier, lower in depression, and the effect lasts, what, for weeks? It lasts for weeks. God built you like that. You have got to be a grateful person. I call it the attitude of gratitude. It's, 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 it will change your life if you become grateful. Thank you, God. So the attitude of gratitude, it, wasn't that like a famous Robert Schuller saying? Huh. Do I need a crucified and risen Savior for this? 
the little old woman who uh, who lost all of her teeth and didn't have money for dentures, and, and she uh, she only had two teeth left in her mouth, one on the top and one on the bottom. And she went to the refrigerator to get something to eat, and she brings it out and spills it on the floor. And she reaches down to pick it up, and her back's hurting her. And she picks up the food, and she starts to put the carrot in her mouth. Have you ever read about this woman? And she, instead of cursing God, because she's only got two teeth left, have you ever tried to eat a carrot with two teeth? She, instead of cursing God, she looks up to heaven. I read this in a wonderful book called Prison to Praise. And she writes, and she says to God, Thank you, Lord, they touch. <laughs> but um, bump that, Yeah, that's just great. Uh, yeah, huh, right. <laughs> the attitude of gratitude will will heal that bitterness. God, how come you gave me bad teeth? Yeah, I've been there. How come, God? God, why did you let my baby die? God, I prayed for my wife to live, and I put the dirt on her grave last week. Why, God? You know what? I can't waste my time anymore with that kind of, of ungrateful spirit because I know him now. And I know that when I weep, he weeps. And I know he hurts more for me than I hurt for me. And I know he knows something about the death of a loved one. Try his only son. He's God. He's got a track record. Yeah, you might want to go elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, he knows about the death of a loved one, his only son. Yeah, could you give us just a smidge more data about that? That sounds very gospel-like. What am I going to do? I'm going to stay thankful. I don't care what, what stuff comes my way. I'm going to stay thankful. Number seven, laugh as often as you can. Laugh as much as possible, says science. Why? Because yeah, did Jesus tell us to laugh? Because it kicks in all as much as we can. Is is that the solution that he came up with, or was his seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Huh. All kinds of endorphins and things that start healing you. Remember what stress does to you? Stress and worry, how they break your body down. Laughter and a positive attitude does the opposite in many respects, and it builds your body up, and all kinds of chemical wonderful things happen in you. But even if it didn't, I would keep laughing. Why? Because I got a friend named Gene. This is Gene, my dog. He's a wonderful dog. Anyone who knows me knows Gene. My students know Gene. And this sounds like a pop psychology pep talk. I mean, you can get this for, you know, y'all ever been to that group, what is it, Toastmasters, where they teach people how to do public speaking? And this sounds like one of those, like, motivational public speaking uh, assignments that the Toastmasters folks give to their people, you know, uh, uh, and you got to learn how to laugh. And here's my dog, Gene. And yeah, da, 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 wow, okay. <laughs> my kids know Gene. Oh man, my grandkids know Gene. Gene has brought smiles to people who have uh, stubbed their toe or scraped their knee. Gene has brought smiles to kids who flunk tests. Gene is just, uh, he's just a cool dog. And Gene's not happy just when things are going well. Gene is mostly happy when things are going poorly. You know why I named him Gene? For two reasons. Because Gene Ort uh, is one of my best friends. And when Gene lost his beloved daughter, Rachel, I talked about it at Christmas, and she died in a tragic car accident, get this, on December 24th. And you think that date isn't important to that family for the rest of their lives. They lost the girl who laughed and taught them all how to laugh, who taught me how to laugh. And when she died, Gene uh, took me to lunch, and he said, i got to talk to you. And he, he said, this is what I'm learning. I am learning that from this moment on, in honor of Rachel and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I will not be adultish anymore. I will be childlike. From here on in, he said, I'm going to be like a kid. And he said, Bob, I challenge you to do the same thing. Be like a child. And kids laugh. You know why kids make it the way they make it and why you love them so much and why you're so attracted to children? You know why? Kids laugh 400 times a day. 
<laughs> Adults, on the average, laugh 15 times a day. What are the kids healing? They are self-healing all the time with this laughter. And he's yeah, that, that, so there you go. You just need to learn how to laugh more. That, that'll just solve all of your worry problems. I mean, this is just getting weirder by the minute. He's also named after Gene Kelly. Really? Now, now we're going to go to Singing in the Rain. Yeah, this is going to help those, that person who's dying. You think I'm mental, don't you? <laughs> My students do for sure. Did you hear what he said? Sing and win. When? When and where? In the rain, always in the rain. Gene always sings in the rain. It doesn't matter what life throws at him. He keeps singing in the rain. You want to see a family who's been shattered, and they keep coming to church, and they keep singing in the rain. You'll see Jesus Christ in his depth. You'll see character to its core. Uh, keep on laughing, gang. Nothing's going to keep me from laughing. <laughs> I got a challenge last week. Somebody said, I dare you to look at this uh, email, this uh, Skype. It's a Skype YouTube thing. I dare you to look at the Skype YouTube thing and not laugh. In fact, it's titled, Try Not to Laugh. And I said, man, I can make myself not laugh. I've been having some hard times lately. This will be easy. So I pursed my lips, and I got real grim, and I turned it on. And you guys, I, was, I, I made it through the baby. I made it through the second guy. Uh, I started giggling a little bit with the third guy when it got to this part of the Skype. And these are just people looking at people laughing. Wait, 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 wait. They don't even know what they're laughing at. They just see another person laughing. They don't know what the joke is. Have you ever laughed so hard that it got so contagious that everybody around you starts laughing? That's so this is what's more important to preach about during a sermon or to show during a sermon than actually opening up God's Word and teaching exegetically. Okay. It's crazy laughter. That doesn't happen enough. And then you start crying almost, and you double over, and your muscles in your diaphragm are hurting, and, and you're going, stop it! Stop it! Do you know how good that is for you and why God made you like that? You're supposed to laugh. Watch this. I dare you. I dare you. Try not to laugh. <laughs> Uh, I must warn you, this next section of this sermon is really obnoxious. I'm not editing anything here. <laughs> this is really how the sermon went down. And this poor girl who's watching him laugh, she starts laughing so hard, she can't make a noise. Watch the girl watching him. She can't even make a noise. <laughs> Yeah, that's good, that's good. <laughs>
My father-in-law, before he died of multiple myeloma, oh boy, could that guy laugh. Baptist preacher for 50 years, and when he got when he got to laughing, he would always say something right before he moved into that last level of laughter where the tears poured, and we're all we don't even know why he's laughing. We're just laughing at him, right? Laughing with him, laughing. Laughter's contagious. And right before he'd start start that last level where he'd get just just like that kid <laughs> when he started doing that, he'd say, "I'm getting tickled, Jesus." <laughs> And you know, Jesus was a huge part of his laughter. Why not? He's got all the bottom line stuff covered. His wife loves him. His kids love him. His grandkids love him. His church loves him. He is just surrounded by love. But Bob, he's got multiple myeloma. He's got 30 tumors up and down his spine, spinal cord, putting pressure on the nerves. He's in terrible pain. Yeah, he is. But he's got Christ, and I am telling you, it's better than morphine. It's better than so Christ is better than morphine. Okay, so this person just needs some more Jesus. The dying person just needs Jesus to help him through the pain because he's better than morphine, so they can just laugh. That's what Jesus will give him laughter, right? Anything else? All right, be generous. Science says, give it away. Give it away now. Give it away. God loves a cheerful giver. The research says, make giving a part of your life and be purposeful about it. Researcher Stephen Post says, helping a neighbor, volunteering, donating goods results in a helper's high. Wouldn't know much about that around here, would we? Every, all the people who are out there with the trucks. So that's what we need. We need a helper's high. Wow, yeah, that's just great. Loading up the food, it's called a helper's high. That's that's a psychological term. It's helper's high. It just happens that God just rushes this adrenaline, whatever it is you need. When you're giving to other people, it, it, it comes and consumes you, and you get happy. This is what they write. You'll be much happier. You'll be a much happier person if you're generous. The statistics all prove that those who spend money on others report much greater meaning and joy. And there's, uh, there's Gene Ortz. Number nine, be childlike. I tell you the truth. I, I capitalized the next three words. I tell you the truth. I capitalized them for a reason. Unless you change. Why do you need to change? Because you have sinned. You have sinned and become adultish. We've sinned and become adultish? So the, the, the repentance is becoming childlike. Abba Father is much younger than we are. You heard Rob Wedner read that last week, didn't you? You, have, you and I have sinned and become adultish. Unless you change, Jesus said, and you become like this little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, Father, make us more like children. Make us quick laughers and quick forgivers and quick faithers, trusters. Make us like children, God. Take away the jaded parts. Rip away the masks that we, that we wear for personas to impress other people. Make us like kids, God. Or what you see is who you are, and that's what everybody's going to get. And make us content, Lord, with who we are and what you've given us. And content with the cross. You are enough, Father God. Content with the cross. Can you give me some details about the cross so that I can be content with it? Jesus, you are enough. I don't need anything else. Anything else is gravy. You're enough. Be enough. 
for everybody here and help my brothers and sisters, especially those who came in here with worries and anxieties and impossibilities. In your name, amen. Look at number 10. Fill it in and then, then we'll be done just a bit. Number 10 says, let him love you. Let God love you. Let God love you. It's my biggest sin. It's always been my biggest sin. I, I... Can you show me some passages that talk about how God loves us? You know, like God loves us or uh, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, think something like that. Can you give us one of those? I try to make him love me. I try to do things to make him love me. I'll perform. I'll do anything, God, to make you think I'm a good guy. And I'm not. My righteousness is as filthy rags. All my good stuff, it just doesn't measure up. Right, right. Can we get, can we get a clear presentation of the gospel in here? And, and I know that. I can't keep the law. If you break one minutia, part of the law, James, yes. James 2.10 says you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. Right? Oh, man, we're close. We might hear the gospel here. I just break one little, I just have one bad thought about another human being. I am guilty of the whole, of breaking the whole thing, God says. Why did he say that? Because he wants my performance to be impossible. He wants to be gracious. His grace wants to be so thick in my life that I sink in it. I sink in his grace. So God wants thick grace that you sink in, like gravy, okay. Grace. Now, I'm going to tell you this as quickly as I can, but a month ago, I was speaking at a place called Brown City Camp for 3,000 missionary... And now we're steering off into a story about yourself. ...church people in the North Woods in, in Michigan. And as I'm sitting in my seat waiting to come up on the stage, there's a family called the Collingsworths, and they're singing these songs about Jesus and his love. I've been doing this for 40-some years. You know, I've heard a lot of songs about his love. I've seen lots of families sing. I've seen lots of musicians and, uh, and, and sometimes I get really blessed, and sometimes I'm busy, I'm thinking what I'm going to say, I'm praying, whatever. And this time I just let the, I let the message of the song get to my heart. I have never one time in my entire life that I can remember wept. I have never wept when I was preaching. Sometimes I would get teary-eyed, but I have never unabashedly wept. And I'm sitting there in my seat, and tears come to my eyes, and I am feeling loved by God. And it's not because I'm going to preach tonight. It's not because I study. So you were feeling loved by God. Okay. It's not because I'm doing anything. It's because I am simply flat out worth the death of Jesus Christ. And every song is like giving. Because you're flat out worth it. Okay. Giving me heavier love, a heavier weight of love on me. It's a, it's a light burden, but I can feel it. It almost has substance. And, and it's so strong that when they, they say... They so you're that, preaching your experience, that some kind of psychological thing that you've experienced to Jesus' love. How exactly is this going to help the person who needs to hear the gospel? The last song, I get up out of my seat and I feel like I'm walking through syrup or something. It's just all over me and everything slows down. And I come up to the stage. And Was the glory cloud present? They hand me the microphone. I'm supposed to speak for 20 minutes and tell the people, uh, wrap, wrap it up. They said, Bob, wrap it up with a gospel message and give an invitation for people to become Christians. And that's what I'm supposed to do. And I got the microphone. I look at the crowd and the tears just keep coming. This has never, ever happened to me. For I am loved. And his love was, was tangible to me. I could touch it. I could taste it. And it doesn't happen like that maybe a lot. But boy, it was happening to me right then. I had an anointing from the spirit of God's love. And I couldn't talk and I just kept crying. And I'm trying not to cry too loud and I'm wiping my sniffles. <laughs> I'm just looking out there with eyes as big as saucers, wondering, what do I do now, God? And the love kept coming. 
And after a couple of minutes of me just crying, people start coming to the altar. Because it's not the sermon, it's the love. And God starts communicating love to people. And that night I walked out, I didn't say a thing. So God started communicating love. Okay. Intangibly, apparently. You know, with, with wordlessly just infuses it in them okay anybody didn't counsel anybody didn't hear anybody's story i just kind of walk like this i walk over to my cabin i lie down in my bunk i'm on my bunk flat on my back and i just stare up at the ceiling feeling his love i can feel him saying i love you i love you shut up and let me love you stifle your mind just for a second and let me enter stop thinking about all the stuff you have to do let me love you and you guys, I lay there at least till 3 o'clock in the morning, maybe later, with my eyes open and I'm, sur- I'm surrounded. So what were you doing? Soaking in the mystical presence of God? <sighs> by love. And I got up in the morning and I walked over to breakfast like this. <laughs> and I'm just kind of just kind of happy and I eat my breakfast and I go, I got to teach. And I walk over to teach and I found out something that morning that it's not, I used to think the most excited pastor was the one who talked the loudest and the fastest. Now I think the most excited pastor is the one who can't talk at all. <laughs> he talks, he walks the slowest and talks the slowest. And I came back to GCC and I'm just still sitting in that cloud of love and I'm right over there with my wife where I always go and, and uh, Trace Rory stands up with the band and they sing this song and as they're singing the song, the tears go, come again. I go, Bobby, you're getting so old and emotional. And as they're singing the song, I realized that's it. That's the song. That's what I experienced at camp. That's it. And when I heard the song, I said to my wife, we got to go home and get the words. i got to print them out. i got to memorize them. This is what it is. And I went home to, t- to type up the words, and I found this on YouTube. And you guys, she is sing- Kim Walker is singing the song that Trace did. And as she's singing it, same thing that happened to me happens to her. And she has to just stop singing. And if you watch her, she'll go like this to the band. She'll go like this to the music. Because the love of God is all over her. And she's got something to say. Watch. I'm still clo- too close to it not to weep. This, this is the healing message from God to you. Come unto me. So this is the healing message of from God to those folks. Okay, it's not the gospel. We've only got a minute 45 left in this sermon. And I will give you rest. Rest in his love, beloved. Last night, a young man who's been in the war in the Middle East, who has seen terrible, terrible things from the deaths of people because he was a soldier. He has seen so much, so much evil. And he just felt like he couldn't be forgiven for all the things that he had done. And I told him there's only one sin that cannot be forgiven, and that's to say no to the shed blood of Jesus Christ, to blaspheme the spirit that is whispering in your ear. So tell me more about the shed blood of Jesus. Can we get some details in the minute 11 that la- the last in the sermon? I love you. I love you. To reject God's Abba voice saying, I love you. I love you. That's the sin you will not be forgiven for. He loves you right now. You know it. And I got to say to that young man, past is not present, did is not does, was is not is. Jesus Christ is joy. And you are about to be filled with his love. Rejoice, my younger brother, for the Aslan lion 
Aslan the lion is about to romp through your life. So now an allusion to Aslan at the very end that doesn't even make any sense. Jesus the Christ is about to save you. Great. How? Wherever you're sitting right now, will you let him love you? What does that mean? Well, we together rejoice that another guy last night gave his life to the love of Jesus. Yeah, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that somebody gave their life to Jesus, but that Jesus gave his life for us. Um, Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice, in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Four. While we were were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass and brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now, the law came to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
strange. Bob just kept kind of never getting to the gospel, did he? Some great advice, I'm sure, about how to be happy and take some of the stress out of your life, all from scientific stuff found on the Internet. Not None of it were points that Jesus made. And then at the end, you just have to experience without words God's love. Again, that doesn't count as the gospel. And the tragic thing is, is that had somebody showed up that day because they had heard that they were dying and they were looking for how they can be made right with God, they didn't hear the gospel. Christ and him crucified for our sins wasn't proclaimed. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name was not preached. Sadly, that person would have left that night still in their sins, still unforgiven, still not knowing about the peace that they had as a result of Christ's death for them on the cross. They would have left despairing and more than likely gone to their death despairing as well and faced an eternity in hell. I thought the seeker-driven movement and its way methodologies is all about bringing people to Christ. Yet I didn't hear any gospel that would have brought even the most, uh, so, well, how do I want to put this, <coughs> Who that would have brought um, even somebody who was the mildest of sinners to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Seeker-driven movement, its methods and its preaching are bankrupt. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support this uh, radio outreach, please do so by visiting our website and clicking on one of the friendly yellow buttons. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that, sending that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.